So we've got a little bonus portion to the Shendong conference. Uh, Gene Goblet did a delightful and informative talk on restorative agriculture. And it got me to thinking, as I was talking with some friends, that it might be possible here in the United States. I mean, we've been talking about the importance of being able to have access to herbs, and especially herbs where we know where they came from and that they're grown in you know, good organic fashions. One of the thoughts that came to mind is, couldn't something like mahuang, which is very important to our profession, very important to our patients, and hard to come by because of various laws and just the current situation. Is this something that we could grow here in the United States? Is this something that we could, in a way, source ourselves and, and maybe even grow ourselves? And so I have Gene with me for a short conversation on the possibilities of growing mahuang here in the United States. Gene, thank you for joining me for this uh, short conversation. My pleasure, Michael. We always we always love hanging out and talking. So, on the question of of growing something like mahuang, we know this is really important. You've got this deep background in growing, not just in growing Chinese herbs and understanding Chinese herbs, but economics and in restorative agriculture, and just not just like the substance themselves, but the environments that they come out of and the economics that goes with it. So. Is this something that we can do here in the United States? Have you got some tips for us or ideas about how we could grow our own or source our own here in the United States? Well, Ma Huang is a really ideal argument for domestic production. And we know that, well, for three reasons at least. Uh, the first being we really need it because we've got problems on importing. Uh, the second is that it's almost a poster plant for why we need to guard the integrity of our medicine and demand only contextual usage because we've got the FDA breathing down our necks with the ephedra rule. Uh, so we would have to keep very strict controls on how it is grown and sold. And the, the profession is, is the obvious authority to contain that. The third reason is we know how to grow it. And uh, I know that not because I've done it myself, um, but because uh, there were scientists during the 1930s who were investigating it as a source of uh, ephedrine. And they were growing it in during the Depression in South Dakota under very arduous conditions. And so I have uh, two or three papers related to that that are very detailed and how they did it, how they propagated, uh, how they planted uh, yield uh, estimates and all, all kinds of good information that we need. So uh, when we're thinking of maybe having a few people get into it and grow it in their backyard, so to speak. Uh, I know that's a uh, something that people want to do. A lot of people in the profession would really like to grow herbs. They entertain fantasies around that. And um, that's maybe what, what you're thinking. Um, would you like to grow ephedra in your backyard, Michael? Well, I'd love 
this is just me personally. I, lo I love looking at a good garden. I love looking at a beautiful garden. I like eating fresh vegetables. I like being outside. I wouldn't call myself a gardener. I mean, uh -huh. my, my proclivities lie in other directions. I love nature and I like to be in it. But when I think about growing something um, like that, I, I don't want to be dependent on just my efforts for the herbs that I source. Right. So um, that's very responsible of you. Uh, but many well, I just, I just know how it goes because I've had way too many weedy gardens. So I, I, know, I know where that's going to go. Now, let, let me just say for a moment, my wife, who is really good at gardening, and, and we've got a lovely garden here, and it's all her doing. So while I wouldn't do it, I, let's say my wife would like to grow some. Because she's the kind of character who would. Mm -hmm. So so we can go with that. A lot of people have that fantasy who are in the profession. And they've contacted me I, uh, saying, I want to grow such and such. And so we're getting a kind of a romantic model from the concept of a European herbalist or what we call a Western herbalist who uh, grows herbs in the backyard or goes into the forest and uh, wild crafts them and so forth. Um, but I, I actually uh, think that it's a romantic idea and it also displays an ignorance of agriculture. And, and, you know, agriculture is at least as complex as East Asian medicine. And the people who are really good at it have spent as much time as you have in getting good and getting experience. So to kind of downgrade that and say, oh, I'm an amateur, I, but I can produce ephedra or something like that, would be like turning it around and saying, oh, I have read a couple of books on ag acupuncture and I took a weekend course and now I think I'll start practicing ag uh, acupuncture on my family. So that really is the same kind of um, can-do amateur hour uh, approach. And I have a better idea. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, I think that we should do it professionally. I believe that we should form a for-profit business corporation. And we should very uh, carefully, purposefully work with farmer groups around the country. And in fact, I have been working with the uh, a subcommittee of the Herb Committee of the Council of Colleges of AOM. Uh, the chair there is uh, Thomas um, Kuo, uh, who's dean at Eastern School of Acupuncture and Traditional Medicine. Um, and so for a couple of years now, uh, I've been working up a business plan with this uh, subcommittee. And uh, it's in a second draft form. And obviously, nothing's been going on this spring. I was disappointed uh, that that kind of got derailed by the uh, crisis. But we'll pick it back up again. We do have a business plan. And this plan... Um, in considering Ma Huang calls for, um, after we secure the, the funding, we set up uh, in New Mexico, 
and we work with the New Mexico State University to find professional farmers with the right equipment and the right land to grow mahuang. And that, that we set it up so that, first of all, a professional entity under, uh, you know, uh, licensed um, professionals are controlling this crop. Um, then when it comes time to sell it, uh, we carefully control that and we sell direct to LACs only. So... Right, because there's all these legal uh, implications as well with a federal. Absolutely. We would have, have to, to be keep very careful. Very, very careful records. And there's there's no law that says we can't grow it, but you know the FDA would come after um, a serious growing effort. So we would have to now, now let me ask you this. Really, would they go out yeah. they would go after growing efforts that were for profit. If you if you were doing just a backyard garden thing, you know, for your own consumption, so to speak, you'd probably be off the radar. Uh, that would be true. You'd probably um, be off the radar. But, the but the problem is, is most of us don't have the, the know-how to really do this. Well, and, and then, <laughs> I mean, first of all, if you're east of the Mississippi River. Forget it. You're, you're already in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. So there's this uh, Didao concern where Ma Huang is, is uh, uh, grown in dry alkaline regions, and it's not going to be as potent. It's not going to be effective if it's grown in a wet climate, if it will even grow. Right. I mean, this is I something us Chinese medicine people should all understand almost intuitively at this point, that the climate oh, yeah. something comes from has a lot to do with that thing is. Yes. So all of those um, uh, dry, arid, alkaline regions uh, west of the Mississippi, and the, the studies were done in South Dakota where they were uh, growing in eastern South Dakota in a rich soil, and then also in the badlands in western South Dakota. So they were already getting a fix on the... Uh, microclimate and the micro nation in which it was growing. Um, New Mexico, Arizona would be perfect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Grand Junction, Colorado. There probably are several um, places west of the Mississippi where the conditions would be right. Those would have to be chosen very carefully. And if we had a um, Eastern East Asian medicine oversight of this entity, uh, we could work with the, the um, soil scientists and make damn sure that we chose the right place. The next thing is we don't want to work with um, people who, who um, are not experienced farmers. We've already found this out in New York and working with the New York growers that um, you <clears throat> you have to have someone who knows what they're doing, but also that has all of the equipment. Otherwise, you're going to load up your enterprise with capital costs right at the beginning, and that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. So we can't be financially viable. So, so you've got to be tooled up for it. Now, here's another question yeah. that I've got. 
I mean, I'm looking outside my yard right now and there's these pretty flowers coming up and I know we got some vegetables in the backyard, but to grow a sustainable crop of something like mahuang or dangue, I mean, really anything by and large, especially if it's got a root to it, it's not a single year proposition. We're looking at at like a life oh, no. cycle of getting yep. something up and going and we're not we're not talking about months here. For Mahuang to bring it up, make it sustainable so that the person who's doing the work is actually profitably doing the work, what kind of time frames are we looking at? We're looking at at least five years. And that's coming out of the studies done during the 1930s, is that it, the plant does not uh, reach full potency in terms of the alkaloid content uh, for at least four years. And what it does, it's a really pretty interesting it spreads by rhizomes so it forms a mat and those researchers figured it could be uh mown and baled like hay mm. so you have to wait at least five years but once you've waited and and it's working you basically give it a haircut every year so you're looking to build a sustainable mahuang yep. ecosystem in essence yes yes you you, you would have swaths of it um, out in a field and they would be geared to uh, the, the grower's equipment and so forth and it would it would form a uh, complete uh, patch so there wouldn't be any weeding because the mahuang is going to grow together and form a mat and that's going to keep up the weeds so it could be a money maker for us and what I want to do is to start growing all the difficult things right away. And if it turns out to be profitable for us, then use those profits to subsidize the crops that take a whole lot of labor and a whole lot of um, trouble mm -hmm. to harvest. And we've got lots of those. But Mahuang would be one of the easier lifts, if I'm hearing this yes. correctly. Yes. That would be if it's done correctly. If it's done correctly. Yes. It's an easier lift, and it's at minimum five years. Right. That's the easy lift. Right. Uh -huh. But then once you have done things right, you have a permanent crop. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, first of all, that's carbon sequestration. That's the kind of regenerative agriculture crop that people want to go for. So the farmers recognize uh, the value of these perennial crops that can be established. And they have to be established in a, um, you know, not a monoculture. There have to be other things in the area because you, you want biodiversity. That's, that's going to improve the health of your soil and maintain the health of your soil. Um, but for a cash crop, for East Asian medicine, this this probably would be one of the most um, uh, easily maintained after the startup period is over. So it would be good for the farmers and would certainly be good for our profession. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it'd be good for the soil if you're doing this in a biodiverse way. Right. This could be really, really helpful. I think so. I, I think it would really be exciting. Anyway, with the, um, I, I worked uh, in New Mexico. They had a group of people growing Chinese herbs, oh, 15 years ago that uh, it didn't last. 
Uh, and we've learned a lot about farmer groups since then. Uh, but I do have friends at NMSU, including horticulturalists who are highly motivated and think this would be a great idea. So we have to find funders for this project. Um, and in order to find funders, we want to run a networking campaign within the profession and get a lot of people helping uh, to locate investors. It's not going to be your average investor. It's going to be somebody who really understands uh, the importance of East Asian medicine uh, for public health. And uh, once we get funding, then the people in New Mexico are ready to go. Interesting. So, so this is, yeah. it's always interesting talking with you because, you know, I practice Chinese medicine. I do Chinese herbs. I get it. I, I kind of get it maybe in that romanticized way that you were just talking about that, but there's all these other processes going on before the herb gets to me. Um, but it's, yes. it's always fun talking with you because I because I can bring into view that there's the herb that we use and the work that we do, and that's one piece. There's also the environment that supports all of that, but there's also these economic considerations, these interlocking considerations between economics, livelihood, dirt, right, and practice. Yes. And if we're thinking about, I'm using air quotes here, growing herbs, it's helpful if we remember those larger interlocking pieces that that would make that sustainable in the long run. Yes, and sustainable means economically sustainable. Of course, if you can't too. do it, because if you can't make it economically sustainable, it's by definition not sustainable. But I believe that the role of the profession is to control the process mm -hmm. and to um, keep a, keep a gimlet eye on quality um, because the the profession is the most qualified to comment on quality there's there's no one else no scientists or any other investigators uh, in the United States or in the West that are as qualified as actual practitioners so the, so this gets really interesting here because when I think about practitioners I'm, I'm just going to take myself or people that I know as an example because those are the people that I know, most of us don't have the background or the wherewithal to engage at that level. We're, we're busy prescribing herbs, we're busy with our practices, you know, or learning more about the medicine so we can be more effective with our patients. It almost sounds like there would be another kind of... Uh, I'm, I'm going to use the term practitioner because anyone who's deeply involved in something I consider to be a, a practitioner, but they may not be so involved in the treatment side. Maybe they're more like a researcher. There are some people that are deep into research. They're not doing a lot of treatment, but they're doing a lot of understanding and looking into how and why things work. Maybe we're yes. looking for a kind of practitioner who has an eye toward the medicine, but also an eye toward the economics and an eye toward how we make these medicinal substances available. Yes. We have, I know uh, several people with horticultural backgrounds mm -hmm. before they came to East Asian medicine. 
Um, so we need a horticulturalist also, practitioner. We we have uh, pr- uh, practitioners who own farms mm-hmm. that are you know not necessarily in active farming, but they own land. So uh, there are several people with. Uh, resources that would be very helpful. And and it's not necessary that all practitioners know about horticulture. We just have to have a squad, I like to say a a horticultural squad within the profession. Well, you know, we have this, uh, we have this sort of, um, uh, what's the word that I'm searching for here? We have this like deep esteem for the scholar practitioner. But maybe, maybe what we also need are some farmer practitioners. That's that's possible. Um, the the uh, um, I'm a little skeptical of that because I tell people, you, you just spent what uh, hundred two hundred thousand dollars on graduate school. Oh God, I I, ho- <laughs> I know, hope and- nobody spent two hundred thousand on graduate school. <laughs> and you you're going to now you're going to study agriculture no you, those are, are two separate fields you know and they are separate in china also the the uh, clinicians in china don't mess around they have uh, phd level medicine material specialists okay. so but i i'm not saying that nobody can do it but i'm I'm saying that it's going to be rare. It would be rare. And really, the more realistic thing, it sounds like, is that we find ways of partnering and working together with other professionals who are as deep in their expertise as we are in ours. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Because that's what they've got in China. Mm -hmm. Well, there's only so many hours in the day. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, Gene, any other... I love it. Like I say, every time I talk to you, I come away with a much bigger nuanced view of how this stuff works. Any last things to share uh, before we wind this down? Oh, I think that's the basic uh, scoop on Ma Huang. And uh, so many of our other herbs have equally complex uh, profiles and problems attached to them. So I think it's wonderful because um, I'm, my uh, avocation is horticulture and I love the idea that these plants are like radically different characters, each of which needs uh, care and understanding. And uh, it could, could be just a marvelous line of investigation in the 21st century if, if we uh, could get it off the ground. Well, I, I certainly appreciate all the work that you've done toward this. Thank you.